0: The bigger class that you will never graduate from is understanding who you are and what makes you come alive. And the more that you devote yourself to that, you know, in parallel with the pursuit of whatever you're doing, um, at the end of the day, like if this class is about happiness, that's going to make you way happier and fill you with way more meaning and way more purpose and way more joy um, than reflecting back 20 years later and knowing that you had a 4.0 when you came out of school will ever make you feel.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Marcy Bullock. Welcome back to season three of Wolfpack Career Chats, the anchor season. A, ambition. N, networking. C, compassion. H, health, both mental and physical. O, organization. And R, resilient. Enjoy the pod. We are so grateful. That you've jumped in to Raleigh, North Carolina, to our new class called "Practicing Happiness." We're using your stuff. Everyone has completed the Sparker type. So, Jonathan, would you start off a little bit? I mean, obviously, everyone knows who you are: New York City dad, husband, best-selling author, and host of the Good Life Podcast. Tell us a little bit about how you practice happiness in your life. And again, we can hear you. Great, you're up on the big screen.
0: Got it. Sounds good. Um, so it's a great question. How do I practice happiness in my own life? Um, I think the first part of it for me is, um, realizing and acknowledging that happiness is a snapshot and meaning is the movie. So getting really clear on the fact that happiness is not a persistent state in which we exist. And it's actually that aspiration can be more harmful, um, than helpful. In fact, there's research that shows that. So, First, just acknowledging the fact that um, happiness, in fact, is this, it's an experience, it's a moment that we move through. Sometimes we can sustain it for a long window of time. And also the other thing that I think I acknowledge, and this is all along sort of forgiving my humanity when it comes to happiness, is that part of happiness is determined by, you know, there's a nature-nurture element to happiness. I'm sure you guys have explored this. And, um, and there's pretty strong evidence that we all have somewhat of a genetic happiness set point. And without sort of a regular practice to alter the way that we feel, sort of like on a daily basis, um, we tend to revert to that set point. And for some people, it's sort of like, your set point is all the way up here. You're just giddy. Like you were giddy from the time you were a little kid and you kind of walk around just in a in a really happy state. And for some folks, it's more sort of in the middle. And for some folks, you may even tend a little bit more towards melancholy. And that actually doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Um So I think acknowledging you know those two things for me in the first place that it's it's the snapshot and not the movie um, and that you know i'm going to cycle in and out of this thing we call happiness and also that a certain amount of it is absolutely within my control and a certain amount of it is not it allows me to really forgive myself when i think about okay so how do i experience happiness in my life and how do i practice it so the way that i tend to practice it more than anything else is not by directly pursuing experiences that I think will make me quote happy, but actually by pursuing experiences that I feel are deeply meaningful to me. um, And that will bring me a sense of communion with other people or with nature. So for example, um, you mentioned when you sort of introduced me, New York City dad, husband. So the New York City part of that is no longer true. Um, After being a lifelong New Yorker um, at, you know, Two years ago in September of 2020, we moved out to Boulder, Colorado, which is where I am right now. And part of what I do now, like as I'm looking at you, I'm looking at my camera and right behind my camera is a window. And behind that window, which would be sort of like the equivalent of two city blocks back, I'm looking at the front range of the Rocky Mountains, the Flatirons. And at some point later this afternoon, I'm going to be hiking there. So four or five days a week, I just vanish. Like I'm in the middle of a work day. Um, but I know that nature affects me in a really profound way. It gives me the sense of expansiveness, the sense of meaning, the sense of awe. And it's, it's not just physically good for me to be hiking. It's psychologically really important for me to be in nature. So part of the decision to actually literally change locations and be in a place where I can be out in nature without having to get in a car or, you know, like do anything that actually serves as an obstacle was knowing how it affects me and knowing that, you know, all of these different things, like, I don't, I don't have the experience of like, I'm walking, and just um sort of like, feeling like, wow, I'm really, really, really happy. For me, it's more of a feeling of, I feel really at peace, I feel really content, I feel a sense of just, you know, joy. Um, there are times where I've been walking along trails and I literally just start laughing out loud. Um, and I would say those are momentary flashes of like, saying, you're know, like, wow, I'm seriously like giddy at this moment. I can't explain why. Um, it just kind of washes over you. So for me, first acknowledging the reality of what happiness is and isn't of how much access we have to it and how much we don't, and how much control or agency we have and how much we don't is important. And then I look for activities that give me the feeling of being connected. To myself to nature to the people who i love to be around um and you know when uh george valiant and i'm not sure if you've, you're covering this in the class but um you know the longest running study on human flourishing was actually a fairly small scale study the grant study but it literally tracked almost every metric in the lives of a group of people for the better part of 80 years and the longest running curator of that study george Valiant, was once asked like of all the things that you've looked at. Of all the different things that you've tracked, is there any one that really stood out as being determinative of a life well lived? And his answer was love, full stop. And I think what we're seeing now is so much of the research is that, um, you know, as Jonathan Haidt, who's over at NYU now shares happiness lies in the in between, you know, a lot of it is, is, is about the way we relate to other human beings, the way that we relate to ourselves, the way that we relate to the natural environment, the way that we relate to our work. Um, so that's a lot of sort of like my lens on happiness. That was a really long winded answer.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love that idea of the studies you quoted and the data about connecting to other people. And even in your own life, how that's played out with your recent West Coast move, I guess, in the last couple of years. So tell us more about how you decided to write the book Sparkotype and come up with the, the names. Our class is really curious about the names.
0: Yeah. So, um. So the the body of work, actually the early, early, early seeds of the body of work have been planted for my entire adult life, but a major, major inciting incident for me was nine eleven. Um so I was in New York City, like a lifelong New Yorker. So I was in the city when nine eleven happened. I knew somebody who went to work that morning on the top floor of one of the buildings where the entire firm never came home. And um and it was a, a really profound moment. It was a horrifying moment for me. Um and I had actually, um, literally just signed a six year lease to rent a floor in a building in New York City the day before that, um, married with a new home and a three month old baby. And my intention was to launch a new business. And that business is going to be a yoga center that I hope would be one of the premier yoga centers. So I woke up the next morning, like to this absolutely horrifying experience immediately asking who did I know who's who's gone and there were people. And then also asking myself, Am I really gonna do this? Like launching a business in the best of circumstances is wildly risky. Um and I had done it a number of times before, so I know the, the process of entrepreneurship. But really thinking about that person, um, who I knew that didn't come home, the fact that he was a young dad of a two and a half and a nine month old baby. He was somebody who, you know, like got everything that he wanted. Um And that didn't stop you know like there's we are we are made no promises we like to be optimistic we like to think about living a long healthy like vibrant life um and yet in the blink of an eye you know like we just don't know and permanence is the only guaranteed fact of life and it really made me re-examine how i want to spend my time on the planet and since the vast majority of my time and your time and every one of you sitting in those seats your time Is going to be spent when you leave the university in some way shape or form working whether that is a job that you get paid for whether that is a primary role of devotion as a parent a partner a caregiver you're going to be doing something where you're devoting yourself to investing a lot of effort for decades of your life and really start to think like how do we use that time well you know how do we look at this thing we call work whether it's you know personal professional whatever it may be and how do we really How do we use that time well? How do we get the feeling of coming alive from that time? And what I really needed to deconstruct also, and this happened over a period of years, was what do I even mean by work that makes you come alive or that sparks you? That's my shorthand for it, right? And it's really, it's the overlap between five really important states for us as human beings. One is meaningfulness. Does the work actually matter to me? Does it feel meaning to me? Um, Two is access to flow or flow states. That feeling like we, you know, we've started doing something and we blink and it feels like a half an hour has passed and it's nine hours later and the sun has set because we are just so utterly absorbed in the activity. We've gone somewhere else and it's been this stunning, you know, experience. The feeling of excitement and engagement. When you get out into our excitement and energy. When you get out into sort of like the professional world, it tends to get shorthanded with the phrase engagement um i like to use human words so i, I want to know that even if it's going to be hard work if i wake up in the morning i'm excited to do it you know and at the end of the day even if i've given so much i'm going to feel energized the two other remaining things are what i would call expressed potential like you're not actually you're bringing all of yourself to this thing you're not stifling or holding back in any way and the final piece is purpose and that works on two levels one is an immediate sense of purpose like, you know what you're actually working towards and it matters to you. And then more broadly, if you zoom the lens out, this sense of purpose in life, like I'm doing the thing that I feel that I was put here to do. So it turns out there's actually substantial um, research on all five of those domains, which is great to know and how they get elicited and also how they affect us. Each one of those is stunningly important in our ability to actually live a good life. You know, we now know that having a sense of purpose is not just good psychologically. It actually happens to be fantastic psychologically, but it also literally affects your risk for life altering or ending disease, your inflammatory markers in your body. But we just having a sense of purpose changes not just your psychology, but your physiology. So each one of these things adds together. And when you can actually show up and do work, do something that gives you access to these five different states, it will radically change. The way that you experience work and then in turn, the way that you then experience your relationships and the way you experience your life. So I look at those five different things and I just started calling them that state is being sparked and said, like, you know, can we actually figure out what the work is that gives us that feeling of being sparked? And the, 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 the sparkotype element, the name spark type came from the fact that. A number of years back, I started wondering whether I could identify and map a set of universal impulses for work that gives you that feeling of being sparked. And I thought we would start out, you know, and it would come in with millions of different things. And we started out actually on that level. 7.8 billion people on the planet, the wealth in theory, you know, there should be 7.8 billion unique impulses. Turns out, in fact, that when you start asking what's underneath that, what's underneath that? When you start deconstructing, like, what are the fundamental units of effort that like go into all the different ways we could exert ourselves? It distilled down to these 10 impulses pretty quickly. It actually, I wasn't, I had no idea if we would able to actually distill it down to that. And the fact that it's 10 still bugs me a little bit because it feels a little bit too slick. Um, but, uh, but that's where we are. Like the scientist side of me sort of like constantly holds open this understanding that maybe as we deepen into research will like some another impulse will be revealed but this has sort of become pretty stable for a number of years now and then i wanted to know if they were real right so we started just testing them with a whole bunch of and like doing a lot of interviews and conversations and i started calling them along the way sparketites because what i realized is it it's not just 10 impulses but each one of these impulses Tends to have its own unique and pretty common set of behaviors, tendencies, and preferences that form archetypes. So if you have this impulse, it's also a pretty safe bet that you have certain tendencies and certain preferences and certain ways that you interact with the world. And I started shorthanding them and just calling them sparkotypes, which was really just a fun way of saying like the archetype for work that sparks you. Um, so that's how we came to that term. And then over a period of years, we started to say, well, Let's, let's deepen into the research. Let's see if we can actually really validate these at a higher level. And that's what led to the development of the assessment. Um, where now we have about 660, maybe 670,000 people, about 33, 34 million data points behind it and some really interesting follow up, um, research and a whole bunch more that's going to be coming this year to show correlations between doing the work of your sparkotype and those five states that we talked about earlier. Um, and we're also going to be looking at things like markers for burnout and or, and, and subjective well-being and happiness. Um, so it'll be really interesting here.
1: That's really interesting. So coming up with those 10, how did you pick the names of each of the 10?
0: Yeah, naming conventions is a really hard thing. And it's always fraught. What we learned really quickly is you will never make everybody happy. <laughs> um, you will. So you're always doing a bit of a balancing act. And what we tried to do is... Um, is pick names that capture the, the essential nature, the fundamental energy of the 10 different types. Now, some of them people are just like, everyone's like, Oh yeah, this is like perfect. Um, others are like people want to have more conversations around. I know you referenced in your notes to me the warrior, which is the one that was one of the toughest to explore. And, and the reason that we actually went into that, um, is that what we realize is this impulse tends to be astonishingly fierce in the way that it presents. And necessarily so, so when it shows up as a little kid, you know six year old on a playground, like organizing your friends, so the impulse is about gathering together, organizing, and leading people from where they are to some deeply desired outcome well when you're when you're young, um the stakes are low, and the level of adversity tends to be low. it's more just fun, but as you sort of like get older and as you come into adulthood, um two things tend to happen: one is the stakes tend to really rise. And the level of adversity rises. So even if you call yourself a community organizer, you think, well, what a fantastic thing. Everyone's going to be behind that. Well, the truth is, you know, every, every sort of endeavor to organize a community as, as an adult in in an actual living, breathing community of grownups and families, you're going, the stakes can be incredibly high and you're going to face tons of adversity and a lot of people and entities and paradigms that do not want you organizing. So there is a certain fierceness. Fierce love, fierce devotion, fierce dedication, fierce vision, uh, fierce coherence. It is really complex to sustain social dynamics um, as you get older with like adults with a lot of different power struggles, visions, all sorts of things, and then trying to move them forward as a group in a, a world where the stakes are really high and adversity is almost always high. We, we love to think that that's not the reality of the human condition, that we can all just get along and collaborate and all sort of like, and and that that's not the truth. But if you ask anybody who's actually been in any sort of sustained leadership role to the one, they will tell you, yeah, this is the reality of being this person in this world that we live in, even if we wish it was different. So that naming convention came from effectively trying to represent the fierceness, um, you know, and you see this showing up in a lot of different Domains and context, you know, Glennon Doyle writes his massively best selling, uh, book called Love Warrior. Like, you know, she stands in this place of, I am a warrior in the name of love. Uh, in, in certain traditions, like Eastern philosophical traditions where you think, well, it's all about peace and presence and being here now. Um, you know, that certain tradition, Buddhist traditions, for example, the Shambhala tradition of Buddhism, the path to learning and becoming, um, is actually known as the warrior's path. Right. And what you're actually really grappling with is a fierceness in the context of grappling with your own mind. Um, so it's built like that naming convention was built around really representing um a sense of fierceness that goes along with it. Um so so each of the names, it's you know, um, it's really interesting to have conversations with people. What we've seen about that one in particular is that um people who tend to challenge that naming convention. Are actually not warriors themselves. Um, is that the people who actually, um, have that identity tend to actually really understand it because they have lived that experience for their entire lives and they understand the line, the underlying energy and actually, um, stand in name again. Is that universal? No. And there's, so it's, it's really interesting to have conversations around naming conventions, whether it's just the sparkotype word itself or the individual types. We're in the process actually now of translating the body of work into different languages including the book so we're having these conversations of how do these different words translate into different languages and in some languages like spanish for example you know we're seeing that there are really good fairly direct translations and then for other ones they're actually they can't quite figure out something a word to match the energy so they're literally leaving them just as the english words even um as the body work goes into other languages
1: I think that'll be really interesting, especially since you talk about Icky guy if you translate it into Japanese. Because we don't have ways of explaining yeah. that in Western culture. Um, talk a little bit about your primary, your shadow, and your anti, which I think is pretty new because I had taken it a couple years ago, and then I want to say I'm responsible for at least one thousand of your six hundred and seventy thousand. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but what is, what is that all about and how can we use that information about ourselves?
0: Yeah. So what we realize is, you know, of these 10 different types, um, you know, we all probably have parts of them in us, but there tend to be one or two that really um, are strongest on one side of the spectrum and then one that's really strong on the other side. So um, we call your primary, you think of it as your strongest impulse for work or effort that gives you that feeling of being sparked. Your shadow is not sort of like in the Jungian version of shadow, like the struggle the dark side, but rather think of it as your runner up, your next strongest impulse for work that gives you that feeling of being sparked. And they can be pretty close sometimes. Um, but we see a really interesting relationship with a lot of people between the two, which is that you're good at your shadow. You like doing it. You're like, you're accomplished. It gives you a good feeling, but you also do it in no small part because it lets you do the work of your primary at a higher level. So I'll give you an example of that. Let's say your primary and shadow pairing are sage and maven, right? So the sage is all about awakening insight, illumination. It's all teaching, right? That's shorthand as teaching. The maven is all about knowledge acquisition, learning, 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 learning. So you may love learning. You may have gotten really skilled at the process of learning, but if your pairing is actually the sage maven, you also very likely learn not just for the joy of learning, but because you want to have a deep well of knowledge and then turn around and share with other people and it's the sharing it's the illumination process that really gives you sort of like the biggest jones then all the way on the other side we have this thing called the anti-spark type and you're right we actually added that into the assessment in early 2021 i had been doing work with um private clients with executive teams and companies and we've been calculating this manually and what we realized was that you know, there was also this type of work that for most people, they experienced as just being a really heavy lift, taking a lot out of them, requiring a lot of recovery, and just requiring almost like a merciless level of motivation from the outside in to even get you to do it. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you don't have to do it. You know, you may say yes to a job where it's just, it's a part of what you're doing, and you're looking for it to be the lesser part of what you're doing. Um or you may have a primary role or devotion. I mean, if you become a parent one day and you're raising kids, like a lot of that is gonna be joyful and you may find ways to let your primary and shadow really be involved in that work. And at the same time, there are gonna be things that you do. There's work that is part of raising kids that may be actually like part of your anti type, but it's just what you do. It's part of the thing that you, the bigger thing you say yes to. So that that's sort of like the, the spread of those three different things. And, we were calculating the anti by hand in just private client work and realized that every time we shared that, everyone leaned in. And they wanted to have a big conversation and it would explain a whole bunch of things about themselves and about groups that they were working within. So we went back and, and realized that we were actually gathering 90% of the information that we needed to be able to share it. Um, but then we sort of we redeveloped, we expanded the algorithm to be able to determine that. So now, yeah, since about a year ago now, we've been sharing that piece of information as well.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Many of the students in this room are in the middle of their college experience, soon to get internships, maybe some of them even studying abroad soon again, and also their first career, grad school, all the things. How can they use this information as they make those choices?
0: Yeah. So I'll, I'll zoom the lens out a little bit from there and say when you, whether you're getting an internship, whether you're uh, traveling abroad or even literally in every class that you take, um, the impulse for all of us tends to be, I need to succeed on the highest level, you know, and very often when you're in school, that's about grades. When you're in an internship, whatever performance metrics they're, they're looking at you for. And we live in a society where perfectionism, um, has become this sort of like um toxic expectation and mandate, which is massively destructive to us, both physically and psychologically. The, the most important to me, the single most valuable thing that you could do at this moment in time is not make quote success by external metrics, your most important sort of like aspiration, but make learning your central metric. So you're constantly doing things. And, and the question is, Not how can I succeed as big and as fast as humanly possible, but do I even like this? You know, like, is this genuinely interesting to me? How does it make me feel? Is it slowly emptying me out inside? Is there something where I just, I can't explain why, but I'm just leaning into it and I want more and more and more. Is it giving me, you know, like that feeling of being sparked in any meaningful way? And if so, can I even drill down and ask, what is it about this particular experience that I feel like is evoking these feelings in me, whether it's negative or positive. If you spend the early part of you know, your education and then your early part of your working years, just literally looking at it as, my job is to run a series of experiments. And the primary thing I'm trying to understand right now is how are, how is each experiment making me feel? Um, then we get to a place of really clearly understanding what kind of work fills us up and what kind of work empties us out way earlier in life and even if we stumble even if we quit even if we try 10 different things over 10 different months we get to a point way faster where we really truly understand ourselves and then we have the entire rest of our lives and our working years to really just refine and define what do we want to keep saying yes to and how do we build a life and a living and a body of work that is a true expression of this thing that makes us come alive rather than spending half of our lives fumbling in the dark and only coming back to this inquiry, because you will come back to it, whether it's now or whether it's in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, at some point, willingly or unwilling, we're all forced to come back to it. So my my lens is the earlier, the better. And the sparkotypes play a role of helping you get to that place of self-awareness and self-discovery and understanding faster, right? So if we can key in on the type of work that gives us that feeling earlier, The types are just a body of work and a set of tools that help us get there and give us a lot of hints along the way so that we can actually say, oh, well, like it says that, you know, I'm a maker and uh, a sage and this type of work. So what kind of experiments can I run to test these ideas and see the different ways that I might be able to actually explore it and validate this and then pursue it more readily?
1: And I think that really resonated with our group, especially because um, they're all honor students. So they are really driven by achievement, cream of the crop at a really competitive university. So what do you want them to hear, Jonathan, about taking care of themselves? I know you were a young instructor and you have walking in nature and you know connecting with other people as being what brings you happiness. If you were given advice to yourself at age 19, what would you want to say to these folks that you wish you would have known?
0: Hold everything lightly right now. Um, you know, right now and I understand like you're in an environment where it's all about grades and you know, like and the view is where I place in a class will determine what work is going to be available to me when I leave this institution. And in part that's right. But if you actually look five years out or 10 years out, what you'll realize is that while your grades right now may help you with that first thing that you get out of the university, five years and 10 years now, it's going to be almost irrelevant. You know, The opportunities that are available to you will be largely about just how you show up, about the work that you do, about the professional track record you build in the world. Your GPA is going to be 100% meaningless. Um, and many people who are wildly successful, as they get a little bit further into the working world, they were in the middle of their class. The thing that's far more determinative of your success, you know, um, by both traditional metrics and your ability to feel happiness and meaning is your ability to actually really figure out what am I here to do? Um, like to really figure out what is the type of thing that when I do it, it gives me a feeling that I just... Um, I will literally do it for the feeling alone, even though I may get status and prestige and money on the back end of that. It's a nice side benefit, but I would literally volunteer to do the exact same thing if I could. Um, So completely understand the focus on grades right now. Um, And they no doubt will help you in the first step out of the university. But down the road, they're kind of meaningless. But what is really meaningful is self-knowledge and self-awareness and really understanding. The type of work that fills you up and the type of work that empties you out, so I would never ask you to just walk away from the pursuit of excellence when you're in, you know in, in a great institution like you are go for it, but at the same time also understand that that the other thing, like the bigger class that you will never graduate from is understanding who you are and what makes you come alive, and the more that you devote yourself to that you know in parallel with the pursuit of whatever you're doing um at the end of the day, like if this class is about happiness, that's going to make you way happier and fill you with way more meaning and way more purpose and way more joy um, than reflecting back 20 years later and knowing that you had a 4.0 when you came out of school will ever make you feel.
1: That's amazing. And I'm looking back to the students and I can see on their face that they, they agree. So let's hear, uh, I'm gonna ask you your question, Jonathan. You know, I'm a big fan girl. So what does it mean to live a good life? I know you've hit on that in um, in this whole conversation, um, but give us a few more nuggets while we've got you here.
0: Yeah. So I've spent a decade now asking people that question. Um, and I have asked everyone from next door neighbors, you know, and people who just like would not be publicly known to some of the most famous people on the planet, um, to some of the greatest uh, researchers, musicians, actors. Um and I thought over 10 years, I would start to get the exact same answer fairly quickly. And the interesting thing is there have been theme, but it's always a little bit different. When it comes down to me, I kind of have a, a a metric, like a standard that I try and live up to that I feel like for me gets me to that place, which is um when I look at any any way like that I'm going to invest myself, um, I ask myself, will this opportunity give me the chance to become absorbed in activities and experiences that fill me up? while well, surrounding myself with people I cannot get enough with. And, and in some way, shape or form, knowing that people who have no idea this is even happening are going to be positively impacted. Um, to me, if I look at every opportunity and I hold it up to that standard, you know, am I just innately drawn to something? Will I have the ability to absorb myself in it? Will I be surrounded with people who genuinely, I just, they fill me up on every level. And will I make a difference in doing all of this? Um, That's to me at the end of the day. Um, I feel like if I just keep saying yes to that on a daily basis, the net effect of that will be a life well lived.
1: We so needed to hear that today. We're really grateful that you spent this time with us. I know there are a million things you could be doing right now, but giving this back to this wonderful group of students is such a gift to us today.
0: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure being here.